7. Why Days of Peru. The inception of this colony, as has been said, was attended by even more violent disturbances than those common to its neighbors. We have already seen how, each the victim of strenuous jealousies, Almagro was executed at the instance of Pizarro, and how Pizarro himself a few years later was assassinated by the adherents of the dead Almagro's party, who now succeeded in raising to power his son, the younger Almagro. This, however, by no means ended the air of catastrophe and chaos into which the great but youthful colony of Peru was now plunged. Very shortly after the death of Pizarro, Cristobal Vaca de Castro arrived in Peru on a mission from the court of Spain to investigate the causes of the disturbances and warlike rumors which had reached the mother country. De Castro found himself in opposition to the younger Almagro, and a battle was fought. Almagro's forces were defeated, and he himself, although he escaped for a while to Cusco, was captured and executed. In 1543 Blasco Núñez Vila, the first viceroy appointed by Spain, arrived in Peru where he found de Castro in charge of the government. Núñez Vila's methods proved themselves arbitrary in the extreme. Scarcely had he landed when he sent an abrupt command to de Castro to resign his post, and to place himself forth in attendance on the new viceroy. This action roused the anger of the Pizarro faction. Its adherents revolted and established themselves at Cusco. It was precisely at this moment that a totally new factor in the way of officialdom presented itself in Peru. With the advent of the royal audience, a court of judges, newly founded and sent out from Spain, the situation grew still more wildly complicated. The royal audience, its dignity and unanimity shattered by the turmoil in the midst of which it found itself, divided its forces equally on either side. A battle was fought between the viceroy and the forces of González Pizarro, in the course of which the latter obtained a decided victory, and Blasco Núñez de Vila was slain. Having witnessed an almost continuous process of downfall of the various authorities, it is only natural that the sense of loyalty to Spain should have become somewhat obscured in the minds of the Peruvians. As a result, many of the colonists now urged independence of government, and begged González Pizarro to accept the throne of Peru. Spain, judging that the matter had gone too far to be dealt with by any force but one of a magnitude which would have been inconvenient in the extreme to dispatch to so great a distance now had resource to diplomacy, an ecclesiastic, Pedro de Lovesca, famed for his subtle methods and diplomatic strategy, was dispatched to the disturbed colony, González Pizarro refused to acknowledge this new official, although a command to this effect was impressed upon him by a letter sent by the King of Spain, the rupture was now complete, in the first instance the loyal troops were decisively defeated by González Pizarro, but very shortly afterwards the deep methods of Lovesca bore fruit, he was joined by troops from Chile, and by numerous forces from various other districts, while Pizarro's men began to desert him, continuing the process until the bold leader was left practically alone, seeing there was no help for it. González Pizarro surrendered, and was in turn beheaded. It is curious to remark that in these early and disturbed days of Peru no single leader was left to die a natural death. A second viceroy, Antonio de Mendoza, was now appointed. He proved himself an able ruler, but, unfortunately, he died before he had occupied his post for two years. A further epoch of rebellion now followed, until Don Andres Herdadu de Mendoza, Marquis de Canet, was sent out from Spain to occupy the viceroyalty. It was undoubtedly due to the strong rule of this important noble that affairs in Peru promised to settle themselves definitely. After his death, however, in 1561, his successor, Don Zuniga, 
Count Dunayeva, was assassinated almost as soon as he took possession of his post. It was during the government of one of Zuniga's successors, Toledo, that the young Inca, Tupac Amaru, was executed in the great central square of Cusco. The horror which this act is said to have instilled in the minds of the Indians is indescribable. The race had now sunk into a permanent state of melancholy. All this while Spain had been unceasing in her demands for gold and silver, and it was necessary to work the mines strenuously in order to satisfy the greed of the mother country, as time went on. Indeed, the difficulties which lay in the path of a conscientious viceroy tended to increase rather than to diminish. It is true that the country did not now depend entirely for its prosperity upon its gold, for the valuable drugs and other natural products were now obtaining some recognition, and the cereals and general agricultural growths introduced from Europe were now becoming of genuine importance. Other matters, however, were beginning to cause deep anxiety to the ruling powers. The buccaneers had now made their appearance in the Pacific, and the alarm spread by their presence frequently caused an entire cessation of trade. The jealousies, moreover, between the Spaniards and the colonials tended to increase. As the arrogance of the former grew and the resentment of the latter deepened, true to her policy to discourage any attempt at authority on the part of the colonists, Spain had continued strenuously to refuse to appoint any but Spaniards to the highest posts. No single viceroy, for instance, from first to last, was American-born, although the holders of this high office included in their numbers four grandees, two priests, one bishop, one archbishop, three licentiates, and a number of military officers. After a while, as was only natural, the tendency arose to split up the main areas of colonial government. Thus, in 1718, the Viceroyalty of Santa Fe de Bogota was established, and in 1777 that of Buenos Aires. Neither of these innovations had occurred a day too soon. With the growing population and the increasing political and commercial importance of the continent, the strained machinery with which it had been attempted to govern all matters from a single center had broken down and become useless so far as the remoter provinces were concerned. In the course of the settlements and of the industrial progress, such as it was, the claims and rights of the aborigines had become a negligible factor. Indeed, from any but an industrial point of view, the existence of the descendants of the Incas had practically been ignored. In 1632 a minor revolution of Indians occurred which resulted in a quaint species of naval engagement on Lake Titicaca, with the native balsas, or rafts, posing as diminutive battleships. In 1661 there was another outbreak. This was organized by Antonio Vallado, who succeeded in gaining possession of the town of Lopan, in which neighborhood the Spanish authority became almost extinct for three years. It was not until 1780, however, that the Spaniards met with the first really serious shock of Indian insurrection since the first extinction of the power of the Incas. This belated attempt was destined to be the last. The revolution had its origin in the system of forced labor which, despite the warnings and commands that from time to time were received on the subject from Spain, was continued to be imposed on the Indians. In addition to this the unfortunate people were made to suffer further wrongs sufficient to arouse the most meek to a rebellion. Thus by the laws of the Indies officials were appointed to provide the Indians with goods at certain prices. This system became abused to the point that the Spanish officials would distribute as much of these goods as they thought fit among the Indians at a price arbitrarily named by themselves. In consequence of this the impoverished folk were obliged to pay enormous and unfair prices for goods of which they were probably in no need of whatever, and did not desire, an intelligent Indian, Jose Gabriel Condor Canqui. 
determined on a desperate effort to alleviate the condition of his people. Condor Kanki had received a far more generous education than the majority of his fellows, and had studied at the College of San Bernardo, in Cusco. He spoke the Castilian tongue perfectly, and was thus enabled to hold a minor official post in the Spanish service, claiming descent from the royal Incas. He subsequently added the name of Tupac Amaru to his own. Illustration, Dutch and Spanish vessels engaged off Cayado, the port of Lima, from a 17th century engraving. It was on November 4, 1780, that Tupac by which name he was now universally known, made his first move, gathering some trusty men about him. He captured a Spanish corregidor, Arieta, and, charging that official with offenses against the Indians, caused him to be executed. On this the Indians flocked to their new defender's standard, and he was soon at the head of 6.000 men. Tupac now determined on an extensive campaign. After an attack on Cusco, he marched with 60.000 Indians to besiege Lopa itself. While the isolated Spanish forces were overwhelmed in all directions, Lopa succeeded in resisting the desperate onslaught of the Indian army, and the tide of fortune now turned against the Inca leader. After a battle waged in the open, he was captured and put to a horrible death. His tongue was torn out by the executioner, each of his limbs was attached to a horse. Then, the four horses being furiously driven in different directions, his body was torn into four portions. It was in this way that the unfortunate Tupac Amaru died, the last of the Inca race who attempted to assert the rights of his people, with the exception of rare revolts such as these, and of the periodical onslaughts which the buccaneers of all nations made upon the Pacific ports. It is a little remarkable to consider how few dramatic episodes took place during the colonial era in Peru. It is true that one or two events occurred deserving of note. Thus, in 1551, the University of San Marcos was established at Lima, and was the first institution of the kind to be founded in the New World. In 1573 occurred the first auto de fe, followed by numerous other such grim ceremonies, for Lima was naturally the headquarters of the Inquisition. In 1746 the capital suffered from a terrible catastrophe, being visited by an earthquake which shattered the senior city of the continent, while at the same time a great tidal wave swept away the port of the capital, Cayado. Beyond this one viceroy succeeded another, the mines continued to be worked, and, in response to the incessant clamorings of Spain, the miners were flogged and driven willy-nilly to their unwelcome task. As time went on the relative importance of Peru compared to the neighboring states tended to diminish rather than to increase. The most profitable and most easily worked of the then-known gold and silver mines had been practically denuded of their treasure. There were others in plenty, but these were more remote, and the difficulty of communication which then prevailed was sufficiently great to render impossible any attempt at a remunerative working of these. With the decrease in the working of minerals greater attention was now paid to the pastoral and agricultural industries, and with the growth of these the value and importance of the neighboring countries increased vastly. The state of affairs was at length acknowledged by the court of Spain, and was emphasized in 1776 when Buenos Aires was made the seat of a viceroyalty, and was thus released from the last shred of supervision on the part of the Peruvian officials. We are now approaching the stage of the War of Independence. This, in Peru, as elsewhere, was heralded by the newly acquired liberal spirit of the colonials, which, in spite of repressions and precautions on the part of Spain, could no longer be kept in check. It is true that in Peru, the chief center of Spanish officialdom in the continent, 
These manifestations were rather slower in asserting themselves than in the neighboring countries, but this was inevitable when the extent of the moral influence employed by the numerous officials, and the active discouragement exerted by the important garrison of the Spanish headquarters of the continent, are taken into consideration. Curiously enough, the history of one of Peru's last viceroys is permeated with an atmosphere of romance in which the careers of his predecessors were almost entirely lacking. Ambrose O'Higgins, the most striking figure of all the lengthy line of viceroys, had started life as a barefoot Irish boy. He is said to have been employed by Lady Bective to run errands at Dangan Castle. Company meet, through the influence of an uncle in Spain, a priest. The lad was sent to Cadiz. From there, having in the meanwhile become familiar with the Spanish tongue, he proceeded to South America, landed in Buenos Aires, and then traveled westwards across the Andes, arriving in safety on the Pacific coast. Here he appears to have adopted the profession of an itinerant trader, journeying to and fro through the territories of the Viceroyalty of Peru and the government of Chile. His career during this period of his existence was unbrokenly humble, and certainly the adventurous Irishman himself, even in his wildest moments, could scarcely have possessed any inkling of the marvelous future which awaited him. The first step in this direction was made in one of his excursions to the south, when by a fortunate chance he obtained an opportunity to demonstrate his inherent warlike qualities in the battles against the Araucanian Indians. Having once got his foot upon the official ladder, O'Higgins never stepped back. The home government of Spain appeared to regard his career with a benevolent interest. He obtained the rank of colonel, from this he was promoted to that of brigadier general, and was made Count of Balinar. A little later he was made Major General, and in 1792 he attained to the rank of Captain General of Chile, and the title of Marquis of Osorno was conferred upon him. Two years later he was promoted once again, this time to the rank of Lieutenant General. The progressive policy of O'Higgins occasionally brought him into collision with some of the more retrogressive officials, but the strength of his character appears to have prevailed throughout, and it is certainly to the credit of Spain that it singled out and upheld so courageous and broad-minded an official, though single quote Higgins single quote as greatest office, however, was still before him. In 1796 he was created Viceroy of Peru, and thus became the highest official throughout the New World. No fairy story has ever produced a more startling study of career and contrast than that which had fallen to the lot of the erstwhile barefoot Irish boy. The remarkable history of the family of O'Higgins, however, does not end even here. Ambrose O'Higgins was undoubtedly the most brilliant viceroy who had ever served Spain in the New World. The candle of this high office, as it were, flamed up in a great, but transient, flicker ere it was forever extinguished, and it was O'Higgins who fed this flame. With the passing of Ambrose O'Higgins we are confronted with the next generation of his family, as the father had done in the interests of regal Spain, so did the son in the service of the southern patriots. Bernardo O'Higgins, indeed, was destined to accomplish yet greater things in the cause of the independence of South America. Ambrose O'Higgins was one of Spain's last viceroys, his son Bernardo became one of the first presidents of the new Republican world. Chapter XII The Colony of Chile in Chile as has been said, the conquest of the land was effected under far more strenuous circumstances than those which applied to any other part of South America, with the exception, perhaps, of the coasts in the neighborhood of the estuary of the River Plate. In the early days of Chile it is literally true that the colonists were obliged to go about their labors with a handful of seed in one hand and a weapon of defense in the other. It was owing to this constant warlike preoccupation that the early cities of Chile were of so comparatively mean an order, for, 
harassed by continuous Indian attacks as they were, the settlers could find no leisure to devote their energies to anything of a pretentious or even reasonably commodious order in the way of town building. In the north of the continent the enervating climate, facile conquest, and easy life had naturally tended to atrophy the energy of the Spaniards. In Chile, on the other hand, the constant and fierce struggles of the warlike natives, the hardships and frugal living, and the temperate and exhilarating atmosphere, tended not only to preserve the energy, but even to increase the virility of the settler in the south. It is true that in the central provinces of the country, where the Indians were less numerous and less warlike than the Araucanians of the south, a certain number of the natives were distributed into encomiendas, and set to work at enforced tasks. But the number of these, compared with those which existed in the center and north of the continent, remained utterly insignificant. As to the Araucanians themselves, their indomitable nature absolutely forbade an existence under such conditions. It was not only with the aborigines of their new country that the Spanish settlers in Chile had to contend. Nature had in store for them a species of catastrophe which was admirably adapted to test their fortitude to an even greater degree. Thus in 1570 the newly founded city of Concepcion was brought to the ground by an earthquake, and some 80 years later the larger center of Santiago became a heap of smoking ruins from the same cause. Indeed, throughout the history of both the colonial and independent eras child has been from time to time visited by such terrible calamities as these. In every instance, however, the disaster has left the inhabitants in dismayed, and new and larger towns have risen upon the sites of the old child probably owing to the comparatively limited area of its soil, was never raised to the rank of a viceroyalty, nevertheless the governorship of the province was, of course, one of the most important on the continent. After the death of Valdivia on the field of battle, Francisco de Lagrin was elected as chief of the new colony. At the period when he assumed command there had come about one of the most severe of the many crises through which the young colony was destined to pass. The Araucanians, emboldened by their victories, now pressed on to the attack from all sides with an impetuosity and confidence which proved irresistible. The South was for the time being abandoned, and the Spanish women and children were hurriedly sent by sea to Valparaiso, while the harassed army retired towards the north. Presently Lautaro, the famous Araucanian chief, at the head of his undefeated army, marched in the track of the retreating Spaniards, and threatened Santiago itself. But for an access of overconfidence on the part of the natives, it is likely enough that the Spanish power would have been completely swept from Chile. De Lagrin, returning to the capital with reinforcements, found the investing Araucanian army in a totally unprepared condition. Some were carousing, many slept, and in any case the majority were drunk, a state to which, as a matter of fact, these southern Indians were only too prone at all times. De Lagrin, perceiving his opportunity, fell upon the demoralized native army and defeated them utterly with great slaughter. Lautaro himself, the flower of the Araucanian warriors, perished in the ensuing struggle. Villagran had thoroughly deserved this success, which had crowned one of the most exhausting periods of the terrific struggle. He possessed, in the first place, many fine qualities as a leader, and was one of the toughest, bravest, and most honest of the conquistadors. Unfortunately for himself, these qualities did not appear to suffice in the eyes of the highest Spanish official in South America. Shortly after his victory Villagran was superseded by Garcia Hernadu de Mendoza, son of the Viceroy of Peru. Mendoza possessed many good points, at the same time, 
he had to a full degree many of the faults which characterized so great a number of the Spanish noblemen of the period. Thus, he was unduly arrogant and autocratic towards his comrades of inferior rank, flinging Villagran into prison on his first arrival in the country as the result of little beyond a whim. On the other hand, it must be admitted that Mendoza spared no endeavors to conciliate and treat with kindness the Araucanian Indians. Garcia Herdadu de Mendoza had some reason for his arrogance. At twenty years of age, when sent by his father to Chile at the head of his force, he had already distinguished himself by his bravery, and, according to one biographer, had already fought in Corsica, Tuscany, Flanders, and in France. Even in that age there were not many who could boast of having effected all this when still in their teens. It was little wonder that he was high-spirited, willful, and impetuous. Ursula represents him as very ardent in battle, sometimes fighting himself, sometimes urging on his soldiers, always in movement. At the time of the Araucanian invasion he addressed his troops in the most humane terms. One of his sayings was to the effect that, an enemy who surrenders is a friend whom we ought to protect. It is a greater thing to give life than to destroy it. Sentiments of this kind were doubly commendable when, judging from their rarity, they could scarcely have been popular. Notwithstanding his good intentions towards the Araucanians, Mendoza soon found himself involved in a struggle to the death with the now hereditary foes of his race. For the southern Indians maintaining their reputation proved themselves implacable, and would hear nothing of compromise. After many fierce battles, in the course of which fortune ebbed either way, Mendoza succeeded in capturing Copolican, who was tortured to death, an episode which caused a short lull in the fevered activities of the Spanish forces. In 1560 Mendoza was abruptly ordered by King Philip II of Spain to surrender his post as governor to Francisco de Lagrin. That fine old conquistador was now worn out in body and a wreck of his former self. The furious combats with the Araucanians broke out afresh, and continued in abated. A series of disasters shattered the spirit of Villagran, and sent him to his grave. Following this came the usual succession of governors, and the unbroken continuance of the Indian wars, victory and disaster alternately succeeding each other to an extent which would prove monotonous if an attempt at description were made. Illustration, Acapulco, on the Pacific coast, one of the chief points of sailing of the great East Indian trading galleons of Spain, from a 17th century engraving, there is only one instance. I believe, of a white man having gained the complete confidence of the Araucanians, and this did not occur until a century after the two races had first come into contact with each other. It is said that in 1640 to 39 years after the town of Valdivia had been captured from the Spaniards and destroyed Colonel Alonso de Villanueva, who had been sent to the south with the object of regaining possession of the city, effected this without bloodshed by the employment of an extraordinary amount of tact and patience. He landed at a point a little to the south of Valdivia, and boldly made his appearance quite alone among the astonished warriors. He remained with them for two years, when, having won their respect and confidence, he proposed that they should appoint him their governor at Valdivia, explaining that by this move they would effect a reconciliation with the Spaniards, and, in consequence, obtain many material benefits. The Araucanians readily fell in with the idea, and in 1645 Valdivia was rebuilt and was again populated, undoubtedly in the middle of the 17th century time was of very little value in Chile, and in any case it would seem that to effect so brilliant a result at so little cost was worth the two years' wait. In 1577 Sir Francis Drake made his appearance in the Pacific, and was the pioneer of the adventurers who were to follow in the wake of his keel. 
thus new anxieties were added to the minds of the Chilean officials, although it must be said that the colonists, when they once became accustomed to the visits of these foreigners, gave them an increasingly friendly reception, notwithstanding the hostility evinced towards them by the Spaniards. It was not long before this new and grim type of visitor increased in numbers and grew cosmopolitan. The Dutch, always on the lookout for a weapon with which to flog their enemies the Spaniards, had managed to glean intelligence of the successful warfare which the Araucanians in southern Chile were waging against the Spanish troops. When the news of the separation of Portugal from Spain reached Holland, the position of that country's forces in Brazil became automatically somewhat unsettled at all events in theory, and finally in practice. It was then that the idea occurred to them to establish settlements in equally fertile and less tropical climates. A squadron was fitted out by the Dutch navigator, Brouwer, and in 1642 it sailed into the Pacific Ocean, and the troops effected a landing on the island of Chiloé. Here they succeeded in inflicting a defeat upon the Spanish forces. It was now the policy of the invader to establish friendly relations with the Araucanians. Before long they persuaded a number of the chiefs to enter into an alliance with them this brought about. They prepared to establish themselves permanently in the south of Chile. First of all they erected a fort at Valdivia without encountering any opposition on the part of the natives. After this they began to trade, but they permitted their lust of gain to outweigh their discretion. So eager did they show themselves to obtain gold in exchange for weapons and other objects coveted by the dusky races, that the Araucanians became suspicious and in the end awoke to the fact that the presence of the Dutch in their country was due to precisely the same causes as had attracted the Spanish. Disillusioned, they withdrew their hastily extended friendship, and retired to their own haunts, lending a passive rather than an active resistance to those strangers with whom they still remained on outward terms of friendship. The relations, however, became more strained when, on the rare occasions when the two races came into contact, the Indians refused to supply the Dutch with provisions. This policy of the Araucanians won them their object, for in the end the Dutch, unable to subsist without the supplies for which they depended on the Indians, were forced to relinquish their settlements and to abandon the country. An English expedition, with more peaceful intent, under the command of Sir John Narborough, set sail from England towards the end of 1669, and arrived in Valdivia in 1670. On this occasion the hands of the commander were strictly tied since he had received implicit injunctions not to fall foul of the Spaniards, thus, when he endeavored to trade with the Indians, the Spaniards took prisoner his lieutenant and three of his men, whom they detained. Sir John, it is said, contemplated rescuing his men by force, but the fate of the unfortunate Sir Walter Raleigh, according to some ancient historians, stayed his hand, and he reluctantly sailed from the coast, leaving these four members of his crew prisoners of the Spaniards. Rolt who published a History of South America in 1766, has a rather curious account of the methods by which the inhabitants of the town of Concepcion in Chile carried on their business with the Indians. There is a beneficial trade carried on by the inhabitants of the city of Concepcion, with the Indians behind them, who trade with the Spaniards in a very peculiar manner, though they have never negotiated a peace with Spain. These Indians are called Uckies, and inhabit the mountains where they retain the primitive customs and manners of their ancestors. When a Spaniard comes to trade with them, he addresses himself to the cacique, or chief, who, on perceiving a stranger, cries out, What? Are you come? The Spaniard answers, Yes, I am come. Then the cacique says, Well, what have you brought me? The merchant answers, A present. 
And the prince replies, Then you are welcome. He then provides a lodging for the merchant near his own, where all the family go to visit the stranger, in expectation of some present, and, in the meantime, a horn is sounded to give notice to the Indians who are abroad that a merchant has arrived. This soon assembles them together about the merchant, who exhibits his treasure, consisting of knives, scissors, pins, needles, ribbons, small-looking glasses, and other toys, which the Indians carry away, after settling the price, without getting anything in exchange, but, after a certain time has elapsed, the horn is sounded again, by the direction of the cacique, when the Indians immediately return, and punctually perform their respective engagements, the goods they deal in being cattle, skins of wild beasts, and some gold, but they bring very small quantities of the latter, as they are sensible how dear the possession of that metal cost their ancestors and their neighbors. In the various treaties which were engineered from time to time between the Spaniards and the Araucanians, one of the most important clauses which the Spaniards invariably endeavored to insert was to the effect that the Indians were to oppose to the utmost of their power by force of arms the founding of any foreign colony in the territories occupied by them. Thus the attitude of the Araucanians towards foreigners was apt to depend to some extent on whether they happened to be at peace or at war with their Spanish neighbors. It was owing to this, moreover, that the European adventurers found themselves attacked when they had very little reason to fear an onslaught. One of these instances occurred in 1638, when the natives murdered the survivors of a shipwrecked Dutch crew. There were times, on the other hand, when the enmity between the Indians and the Spaniards induced the former to render every assistance to the rovers who came, whether by accident or design, to their coasts. It is certain that the accounts of these foreigners retailed by the Spaniards to the natives were not of a nature to render the intruders popular in the eyes of the dusky southern dwellers. During the chief part of the colonial era the town of Valdivia, in southern Chile, was employed as a sort of convict station for the white criminals of Peru and Chile, and incidentally for a number of persons whose sole crimes were of a political order. These prisoners were employed in, 